Well, we're in Psalm 9 this morning, and Psalm 9 uh, is a psalm that gives us reason to rejoice no matter uh, the wickedness, the sin, the unrighteousness that we might see around us. If you're new to the Bible and you want to go to Psalm 9, just open up your Bible about halfway and then go a little bit to the left. Or if you have one of our pew Bibles that you might have grabbed, those black Bibles, Psalm 9 is on page 451. Let's read Psalm 9 together right now. I want to remind you as we read Psalm 9 that this is the only perfect part of our service, the reading of God's inerrant and infallible word. As you turn there, Psalm 9 says this. To the choir master, according to Muth Laben, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does, for, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, and the net that they hid, their own foot, has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their hands. Hegeon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. There's so much wrong in our world today. Uh, Sin, sickness, injustice. There's blatant wickedness all around us. You can see it in the news. You can see it in people you interact with. It's everywhere. We live in a fallen world. Romans 1 tells us this. It tells us that all mankind is sinful, uh, that we've given in to our sin, that God has even handed us over to our sin, and we keep pursuing it. We keep rejecting God. 
and clinging to wickedness and growing in it. Our world is characterized by open approval and cheering on of sin. We live in upside down realities. We have backwards solutions. Wickedness rules the street and the public square because it rules the hearts of men. This is the world that Christ and the apostles lived in. This is the world that Adam and Eve lived in, though they were created in a far different reality. I don't say this to depress you. I don't say this so that we can sit here and be downtrodden today because of this. But we need to recognize this reality as we consider the situation David finds himself in and as we consider uh, the remedy for that. And Psalm 9, no matter what wickedness and evil we see around us, gives us reason to rejoice. And it gives us reason to rejoice in God's righteousness. This is a psalm written by David. Uh, you'll notice at the beginning it says, according to Muth Laben. This means the death of a son. We don't really know what this refers to. It might refer to the death of Absalom, maybe even Jonathan, maybe even uh, David's son born to Bathsheba. We're not sure of the context exactly. So we're going to understand this psalm, the general context of David's life as he faced injustice and wickedness, and in the general context of Israel during that time. Uh, there is one clear thing about this psalm, though, and it's that David finds great joy, that he rejoices exuberantly in the righteousness and in the justice of God. Though he's seen his fair share of oppression and wickedness, David rejoices in his righteous ruler. And, and that's what we want to learn from David this morning. That's the big picture of Psalm 9, that we too can rejoice in God's righteousness. Now, if you've noticed while reading, this is a long psalm. There's 20 verses in this psalm, and I kind of think I got the short end of the stick because Kent did eight or nine verses last week in Psalm 8, and we've got to go over 20, and we've got like 20 minutes left because it's hot outside and there's kids everywhere. So bear with me. We, we can't go through every verse and word uh, meticulously, but we do want to understand in this psalm uh, five applications. We see David respond in a way, and we too want to respond in that way. We'll examine this psalm generally in two parts. We see in the first half of Psalm 9, David's praise for God's past righteousness and justice. That's in verses 1 to 12. Then we see David's prayer or plea for God's future righteousness and justice in verses 13 to 20. Looking towards the first half of Psalm 9, let's jump right in and look at David's praise. And we see in verses 1 to 2, our first point of application, that we are to recount and rejoice in the works of God. If you come away with nothing else this morning, if you remember nothing else this morning, I want you to come away with this, that the Christian life ought to be characterized by remembrance of and rejoicing in the great deeds of God in our lives and in the world. Now, there are seasons of doubt and struggle and sorrow, but the steady, the normal refrain of our lives is supposed to be praise for God Almighty. I want you to notice two things about David's praise. First, he says that he will give thanks to the Lord with his whole heart. This describes all that David is, his inner person, his emotions, his desires. That which drives David is consumed with praise for God. 
Secondly, David says in verse 2 that he's glad and will exult in the Lord. These words are words that you can think of. What's inside David, this strong praise he has for God is rupturing forth. He can't help but contain it. It's spilling out of everywhere. David has praise for God. It's in his writing as we see. It's on his lips. It's probably in his conversations. It's in his mind. It's what he meditates on. David is filled with praise for God. He's bursting forth with it. That it consumes his entire life and his entire being. And we have to ask ourselves, is this what characterizes you? Are you consumed by great praise for God continually? Are you consumed by the works of God in such a way that they can't leave your mind because you're so excited for them? Is God's praise continually ready on your lips? Um, As I read this psalm, this struck me because if I'm honest, maybe perhaps particularly this week, uh, it's been hard for me. I've been distracted. Uh, I let things stress me out. I let little things in life get in the way of praising God. So it's been a convicting passage for me. And I think that's true of all of us in many ways. We all have things uh, that distract us, that pull us away from praise to God. And we all have things that we love even things we love to tell people about. I like good food, and recently I found Tillamook uh, honeycomb toffee ice cream to be absolutely amazing. You should go buy it now after church if you can. Ask the youth group. I can't stop talking about it. It's amazing. But it's a silly thing, and and if you get me going on something I like to eat, I'll probably talk to you for a half hour about it, and we'll just go back and forth and back and forth, right, and hit the mic. But It's just a fleeting thing. It's gone in five minutes. We let so many things, whether it be sports or television or the news or your kids scoring a goal in peewee soccer, excite us or motivate us in different ways. And I think sometimes we worship those things, even if they're silly things. We let them get in the way of truly praising God for who he is. Rather, we just praise fleeting things. We tend to look like the world in that way. Ask yourself, what are you more excited about? What you're going to eat for lunch today? What you're going to do this week? Are you more motivated, maybe even by negative emotions of what might be going on in our world? Are you motivated by praise for God? As a church, I hope that we can resolve to remember God's works, to remember them and recount them and rejoice in them. David describes these works in verse 1 as God's wonderful deeds. This is a phrase that's only used of things that God can do or that are clearly the work of God. When used in relation to man, these only describe things that man could never do. These are things, these are acts that are God's doing. I'm only 25 years old. I have not lived a long life. But in 25 years, even before the Lord saved me, I can recount where the Lord has provided where he has been abundantly good and gracious, where he has been so faithful despite myself. And yes, where he has even exercised his justice time and time again. I'm sure that you can think of times where the Lord has been faithful to provide for you, where the Lord has been faithful to forgive you, where he has been faithful to comfort you, 
lift you up and lead you and help you in your life. We ought to be praising God for these things together. As a church, let's let this characterize us. So quick application that you can do today. After church, before you start your conversations, stop and ask one another, how has the Lord worked in your life this past week or this past year? Where have you seen the Lord's clear hand in your life? And let's stop and let's praise him for it. Let's do that today and let's be a church characterized by that. Let's let that motivate us and spur us on and encourage one another. Let's recount and rejoice in the deeds of God continually. This leads us to our second point. We see David rejoice in God's righteousness and we too should rejoice in God's righteousness. So after David announced his praise for God, he remembers the Lord's righteousness in the past. David would have experienced the Lord's justice upheld in his life as he does describe in verse three and four. David had enemies, whether it be Saul or his own son. People sought David's life, though he was the Lord's anointed. And time and time again, God brought David's enemies low. So he remembers it. He praises God for it. He then, in verses five and six, praises God for his faithfulness and justice towards Israel. Israel, too, had many foes, many nations against them, even nations they were meant to oppose and cast out of their land promised by God. And David remembers once more, in particular finality, that God has made the wicked to perish, that he's rooted out their cities, that they're now in everlasting ruins. Even the memory of them has perished. There's no uncertain terms here. God has acted righteously and justly for his people. Verse seven to eight, David starts to praise God then for this, for his justice. He describes the Lord as sitting enthroned and established his throne for justice that he judges the entire world rightly. He judges all people with uprightness. We have a God whose righteousness is on the side of his people. We have a God who upholds his people. I think we don't often praise God for his righteousness. I I think it's something maybe sometimes we forget. Um, I, I haven't ever done this as much as I should. Do do you praise God for his righteousness and keeping Israel, uh, for uh, for accomplishing salvation for his people, or maybe just for the mere fact that he indeed is perfect and righteous and none can compare to him? We often praise God for his holiness, but maybe we don't dive into specifics like his righteousness. The fact that no wrong is overlooked by God that all wrongdoing is and will be punished, that he has enacted righteousness time and time again. We often miss, I actually think, God's righteousness for us. We think of God's righteousness as something other, something to be feared or saved from, that we're on the negative receiving end of. But God's righteousness and his justice, as David is about to show us, are for his people. This leads to point of application number three, that we are to rejoice in God as a refuge. We see this in verses nine to 12. 
I'm really thankful for this particular lesson because it tells us that God's righteousness is not cold. That he doesn't simply exact justice on wicked evildoers and let his people just sit there on their own. No, God cares for his children. David tells us that those who trust in the Lord will not be forsaken. That they can turn to God as a refuge when evil is all around them. We see a God here that is near to his people. And the Psalms continually show us this. God is near. He listens. He watches. He's a stronghold in times of trouble. He hears our cries and is mindful of us when wickedness is around us. But how can unrighteous man, that's us, that's all people, experience God's righteousness, which does in fact punish sin, and rejoice in it? How can we be protected from evil? The answer is the gospel. We can rejoice in righteousness because our great and glorious king of the universe who enacts righteousness and judges the earth is also a kind and strong savior who keeps his people. This is exemplified through the person of Jesus Christ. God is just and holy. God does demand perfect obedience to his perfect law. We know that scripture teaches us that all mankind is in sin, dead in sin, cannot save ourselves that we've been given over to a debased mind, and that on our own, we do oppose God vehemently. This puts us in a terrifying position before God. This puts us in the way of his wrath. This puts us on a path to being judged for all eternity. But the good news is that the righteous ruler, the just judge of the earth, again, is a kind savior, that he does love sinners. His love is shown to us in the person of Christ who came to earth as truly God and truly man, who lived the perfect life on our behalf, who died the death we deserved, bearing the wrath of God for sin upon himself and rising again so that anyone who trusts in him, who puts their faith in him, would be given Christ's righteousness and would be given eternal life. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the only reason that any sinner can rejoice in the righteousness of God. Because of the righteousness of Christ and his sacrifice for us. God's righteousness and justice is a glorious thing. He deserves to be praised for it. But it can only be seen that way for those who have been given righteous standing before God. Let's praise God for that. Let's praise God that he's given us his own righteousness when we trust in him. If you've yet to trust in Christ for salvation, I implore you to do so today. Turn from your sin, turn to God. Know Christ as your Lord and savior. Repent and have faith in him. Then you too can rejoice in the righteousness as God and God indeed will be your refuge. The only safe place from the judgment of God is in God himself. So we've learned to recount and rejoice in God's wonderful deeds. We've learned to rejoice in God's righteousness. And we've learned to rejoice in God as our refuge, as David has. In the second half of Psalm 9, though, like like I said, we see David praying. And he's praying towards the future 
expectantly. When adversity and injustice and wickedness are in David's life, he petitions for deliverance and he prays for final judgment. That's our fourth application, that David and we are to petition for deliverance. This is in verses 13 to 18. I think our inclination as people is that in hardship, we tend to look at ourselves rather than God. We, we tend to think God's put some hardship in my life, but he's not going to help me through it. So I'm going to grin and I'm going to bear it and I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm going to get through it on my own. When hard circumstances arise, we acknowledge they're from God, but we don't seek help from God always. I think our prayers reflect that reality. Our prayers reflect that because we will either be prayerless and neglect God entirely, or we will pray simple, basic prayers that betray our small view of God, our small view of his capabilities in a present moment. Adding to this, we're slow to praise God on the back end. Sometimes we just think, man, I'm so glad I got through that. That was a tough few months, but oh, it's over. Praise the Lord, it's over. Rather than saying, Lord, thank you for what you did in those times. Thanks for, thank you for what you taught me. Thank you for how you showed up and worked for my good in those times to grow me, to cause my trust in you to grow. We ought to, as David models, call upon God for strength, for deliverance, that he would remember us in our times of trouble. That's what David asked God to do. He calls upon the Lord's grace in verse 13. He proclaims that God is the one who has saved him in verse 13. And he prepares to praise and rejoice because of the works of the Lord in verse 14. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. 14. That I may recount all your praises that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. David's petition for deliverance is hopeful. It's bold. It's expectant. Do you remember at the beginning of January, think back, it feels like 20 years ago now, January, if you were here, Pastor Eric implored us to pray bold, specific, and persistent prayers. And those bold, specific, persistent prayers aren't meant to be just in good times. They're not just meant to be directed towards others or their salvation of others. We ought to pray bold, specific, persistent prayers in times of adversity, in times where injustice and wickedness make themselves very known. So David prays confidently, prays confidently, and you can see this because in verses 15 to 18, Though some of the verbs here, like the nations have sunk in the pit that they made, or uh, their own foot has been caught, they look past tense to us in our English translation. But really, uh, these are meant to be read future tense. So when you read the nations have sunk, or their foot has been caught, what it's really saying is the nations will sink in the pit they made, and their foot will be captured in the net they made. David is praying an expectant prayer of God for judgment. He acknowledges that God is able to turn the devices of the wicked back on themselves. Their works are futile before God because what they intend for evil on others ends up in their ultimate destruction and being cast 
into Sheol, to the realm of the dead. David also knows, as we see in verse 18, that though our situations can be bleak, it seems like they may not end, that the Lord remembers the needy and the poor. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. forever. Though what is expected, though what is desired, though what's prayed for in our lives, we don't always see the fruition of, what we expect uh, is that it will be fully realized in the future, that God will enact justice and righteousness once and for all. So we've seen that we should recount and remember the works of God. We've seen that we are to rejoice in his righteousness and in him as a refuge. And we've learned that we ought to petition God for deliverance in adversity and when wickedness is around. Our last point, though, I think is going to strike us a bit different. Because our fifth point is that we are to pray for final judgment. I think praying for judgment is strange to us. I think praying for destruction can even seem pretty wrong to us. I think in many cases it would be. For you to pray for the destruction and the ultimate end of another individual would likely be sin. But we find David praying that wicked men would have who would have risen against him and the wicked nations who opposed Israel, that they would be put in their place, that they would be revealed for who they truly are, mere men, weak, frail, fragile before almighty God. But these are points of application for us, so we have to ask ourselves, are we supposed to pray this against our personal enemies? Are there instances where praying for judgment on people is right and okay? Our Christians, our call is to love our neighbors and seek their salvation, even to love our enemies and pray for their salvation, not hope for their destruction. For David, we have to remember, he was the anointed leader of Israel, God's chosen people, a physical kingdom on earth. So their enemies were God's enemies, and they indeed were called to destroy those enemies at times. We can pray for these things in some way, but our role in the grand scheme of redemption, it's different. We are to make disciples, to seek the lost. So even our enemy should be prayed for in this way. For their salvation. But there is evil in our world. There are vile leaders who throughout history have oppressed peoples and nations and been vile creatures. They perpetuated great injustices on entire nationalities and people groups. There is an instance where it would be right to pray for their destruction, for their downfall, that they would be revealed for who they truly are, mere men who are weak, But in the same breath, we ought to pray that the Lord would save them. That true humility would come about, they would recognize their evil deeds. That they would turn towards Christ in repentance and faith. No less justice is served if Hitler accepts Christ as Savior. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ satisfied the justice and the wrath for God, for sin, for anyone who would trust in him. Even more than finding hope, 
perhaps as David has in uh, the ultimate destruction physically of his enemies, we should find hope, our ultimate hope, not in momentary rectitude, but in the final judgment and in the final reign of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our hope is not that regimes would crumble. Our hope is not that laws are changed even to our liking. Our hope is not that people are imprisoned or that our society somehow, despite itself, becomes more loyal. Oh, sorry, more moral or fair. We know that those things do not change hearts. We know that culture and society's only hope is, in fact, the gospel. So we evangelize. We seek the salvation of all. And we hopefully look towards the day when Christ will judge all wickedness and all injustice and oppression and sin once and for all in finality. We anticipate their end, but in their end, Christ will establish his kingdom for those who are his children. And it will be there that no more sorrow and no more sin, no more wickedness and woe, no more hardship or heartbreak will be present, but rather the Lord will restore all things to himself. He will make all things right and new. When we pray for final judgment, we're praying for Jesus Christ to come back and establish his kingdom forever. Because there on the throne will be a righteous ruler, Jesus Christ. And we'll get to reign as heirs with him, forever praising, forever exulting in his good deeds, in his glory, in his justice, in his grace, in his mercy, in his steadfast love. This is the final hope of the Lord's righteousness for us. So as we've seen in Psalm 9, God is worthy of our praise for his righteousness and so much more. He's acted with justice in the past. He's worked marvelously in salvation for his people. And he promises to rectify all things to himself. Let's remember today, throughout this week, and as we go forward, to rejoice in God's glorious, wonderful deeds. Because he is so worthy of our praise. Would you please bow your heads with me? Lord, we're so thankful for what you show us in Psalm 9, that you are a God who is near to your people when there is wickedness and sin abounding. Lord, that if we face injustice, we know that you someday will correct all injustice. Lord, help us to praise you. Help us to have lives that are characterized by praising you for your righteousness, for your justice, and for every work that you've done in our lives and all the works you've done throughout history for your people. Lord, let us be marked by praise for you. May we be glad, may we exult in who you are. May it spill out of our lives. We pray all of this in your name.